All right. Well, we are, I don't even, oh, there we go. All right. So uh, we're in First Timothy 4, but I'm actually going to start in John 6 tonight. So if you're following along, go ahead and turn to John 6. <clears throat> Perhaps an interesting title, uh, but I think you'll see why once we get there. <clears throat> I did kind of lift, Nate Pickwitz has a book called How to Eat Your Bible that he wrote in the last couple of years um, in, in How to Study. <clears throat> but I think you'll understand the metaphor as we get through the verses. But we're going to start with these verses in John chapter 6. And we could read more, but for the sake of time, we'll start in verse 48. Now Jesus begins this discussion in John chapter 6 back in verse 41 when he says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. That's that's the statement that prompts this entire uh, uh, sermon of sorts or dialogue of sorts that's going on uh, with the Jews that are there. Pick up in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers uh, ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now he came back to that over and over again in that passage. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this is a rather controversial passage. Uh, I can go ahead and tell you right now, this passage has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the Catholic doctrine would, would point this to the Lord's Supper and say, look, it's becoming the body and blood of Christ. You know why we know that? Because Christ didn't die for another year after he said this. And he's not saying, I'm going to break off pieces of myself and, and, and do that. Uh, there was an early rumor, malignant rumor of sorts, that was started uh, in the opposition to the church that the young Christian church were actually cannibalistic because they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood. It often misinterpreted passage. So what is Jesus really saying here? Well, he's talking about the idea of what is your sustenance? What is, the, what, is what gives you life? And, and, and yes, food gives you life, and that's why he uses that metaphor. You have to eat and drink to survive, right? But what he's saying is, I need you to be so dependent on me that you eat my flesh and you drink my blood. Like, I am enough for you. I am enough to sustain you. I am enough to lead you. I am enough to get you through this life. It's very similar to what Paul is saying in this passage, only Paul's going to move that to the words of Scripture. Well, it's really not that far of a jump when we consider that Jesus is the incarnate word. So you you must live off of the word, both as Christ and both in the word that is given to us. And that's what's going to sustain you. If you want to be a good follower of Christ, then you must eat your Bible. You must eat the words of scripture. That is your nourishment. You must live by it. It can't just be a cursory reading. It can't just be, you know, I kind of check this every now and then when things are going rough. No, this is my guidebook. 
This is how I live my life. This is how I know right and wrong. My conscience is informed by the objective truth of Scripture, and that does not change, and so I must know that word. I must ingest that word. I must internalize that word. So let's read the entire passage. Go over to 1 Timothy 4. And uh, we talked about 1 through 5 last week, but I'm going to go back and read that again just so we can get the full picture here. But we'll look at verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. And here's the subject of their apostasy. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. Remember, we talked about this, that this, this, this uh, extra uh, physical discipline created holiness. And he says, those things which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, our text for tonight. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for body discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is, this, it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. All right, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren. Right, he's shifted the focus a little bit here. He has dealt with in, in the first parts of this letter of when the false teachers rise up, you must put down the false teaching. This is how you deal with false teachers. But now he says, how are we going to deal with the brethren who are being influenced, who are being tempted, who are being deceived by these false teachers? And he says, you're going to point these things out. What are these things? Well, it's the false teaching. It's the stuff concerning marriage and foods that he's talked about in 4, 1 through 5. We could probably extend it even further back to anything that he's mentioned so far in this letter, but specifically these two teachings. And that word, the Greek word there for pointing out is not harsh. It's, it's actually better understood as something like advice or counsel. Right? We're going to contend with false teachers. We're going to advise and counsel the sheep. We're going to come to the sheep, the brethren, with some gentleness. Right? Because we, we want to deal with them much differently than we're going to deal with false teachers. These are brethren. These are believers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this isn't a spanking. This is, hey, hey, let, let's talk about this. Let's see what the Word says about this. Let me teach you what God really has to say. The false teachers are confronted. Sheep are to be dealt with with love and care and gentleness. Now, he calls Timothy here, if you will do these things, if you will point these things out, if you will counsel the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ, a good servant. That word servant, we've hit it before. It's diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. Clearly, Paul is not saying you'll be a good deacon in terms of the office within the church. What he's saying is you will be a good servant, you will be a good minister, which is another way that word is often translated. He's saying you need to be a servant leader, that you are here to serve the brethren. You are here to serve the flock, and so take care in how you point these things out to them and guide them in the right direction. 
Well, where did he get such an idea? I mean, isn't this totally counterintuitive to what the world tells you to do when you're a leader? When you're a leader in the world, you take, you beat everybody else out, you step on as many heads as you have to to get to the top of the ladder, and then you run the show. No, that's not what it is. It's servant leadership in the church. Again, where did he get such an idea? Well, a good source, mind you, I think you know. He gets it from Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, your diakonos. Mark 9, 35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all, diakonos of all. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am there, my servant, my diakonos will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is requiring service from those that he calls. And that's what it's to be in the church as well. And how are those servants equipped for the job? Well, he says two things. Number one, they are constantly nourished on two things. This is what they feed on. One is the words of the faith. Before we get to that, that constantly nourished word, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, It's used outside of the New Testament and other Greek literature in terms of raising up children and nourishing children and rearing children. So you are providing what the children need. You're educating them, you're feeding them, you're raising them. That's kind of the idea. So Timothy was to feed himself continually on the truths of the gospel because that would sustain his faith. That would feed his faith. It would feed his commitment. It would keep him strong and vigorous for the spiritual things that are in front of him. And, and the words of the faith, again, you, 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 you're not Greek experts, but I've said it enough where you probably know some of these words, but you see logos in here, that's words. You see pisteos or pistuo or pistis for faith. So words of the faith, that's a quite a literal translation. So we, he, has to, he has to raise himself or nourish himself on the words of the faith. I think that's the truths of Scripture, most specifically the gospel. Remind yourselves of the, uh, yourself of the truth of the gospel. And then you also have to feed on sound doctrine. And, and again, we can look at the words here. That kalas there, it's actually kalas. The root word is kalas. Remember, that's the word. It's translated sound here. It's the word that's used 16 times in 1 Timothy, most often as good, as in fight the good fight. And the law is good. And the aspiration to be an overseer is a good aspiration. And everything God created in verse 4 that we just read is good. So this is good, sound, better, the best doctrine. And didaskaleos, you see didasko in there, that's teaching. So this is sound or good teaching. So you have the words of the faith in Scripture, and you have sound, good teaching of that Scripture. And, and, And isn't that exactly what ministers are to do? We are to read the Scripture, and you are ministers in a sense too. I'm not talking about ministers in a big M sense. I'm talking about ministers or servants in a small, lowercase sense, that you are ministers to one another. You are servants to one another in a sense. And so how do we become good servants? How do we become acceptable servants to the Master? Well, we have to know our Bibles, and we have to know how to interpret those Bibles. It has to be objective truth and then application of that truth. So the words of the faith, and then the doctrine in action. There's obedience that's involved here. Well, what's this in contrast to? Well, think about what he's talked about earlier in the chapter. What do the false teachers feed on? Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So contrast deceitful spirits with words of the faith. Couldn't get any different than that. And they have doctrines of demons. We have sound doctrine. 
See, they feed on those two things, and it's leading them to destruction. You feed on these two things, and you find out what is good. And it makes me think of Jesus again. You'll remember when Jesus is in the wilderness with Satan. And in Matthew 4, 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3. And remember what he says. It is written, man shall not live on what? Bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's, That's the idea. Right? I, 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 we, we like food, right? Maybe some of you don't like food as much as I do. I, I like food, right? Like when I go on vacation, I plan my trips around where we're going to eat. <laughs> like I do research on restaurants. You can do all the other sites. We're going to find good places to eat, okay? <clears throat> so if you ever go on a road trip with me, we're going to eat well. I'll tell you that, okay? <clears throat> and, it, 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 and food is good. It's a blessing that God has given us, right? But, you know, all the good food in the world, doesn't make you any more spiritual. Or avoiding all the unhealthy food in the world doesn't make you more spiritual. Hey, what he's saying is that, that if you are driven by your belly, if, your God, if the God is the God of your belly, your desires, your appetites, well, you may satisfy worldly things, but you'll never understand spiritual things making that, 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 that pursuit. And so remember, they're saying, well, if you only eat this, then you'll be more holy. And Paul, as Paul is saying, that's ridiculous. The only thing you need to eat to be more holy is this Bible. The only thing you need to nourish yourself with is the words of Scripture. And and, and Paul says definitively here that Timothy's been doing this, right? This isn't like, Timothy, shape up and start doing this. No, what does he say right there? Which you have been following. Timothy, you've been doing this, and you've been doing a great job. This is a great pep talk encouragement from the head coach, right? Like, you've been doing this, Timothy. Keep it up. Because when things rise up and frustrations rise up and trials rise up, you're going to get discouraged. Keep it up. Keep eating the word. Keep nourishing yourself on the only thing that's going to keep you going. And the fact is that much of Christian teaching involves reminding ourselves of our beliefs, reminding ourselves of the truths of scriptures, and reminding ourselves of practices and pursuits which we know but we're really prone to ignore or forget, right? Like we're, we're very good at kind of compartmentalizing and being selfish and, you know, you know it's the right thing to do, but, ah, uh, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I did this. We do that a lot, and so it takes this constant preaching to yourself. It comes, you know, and, and if you're like me, you'll find yourself in one of those selfish moments, and you just happen to open that Bible that day in your time in the Word, and it just happens to address it directly, and you get that theological stomach punch, right? You're like, all right, Lord, I got it. You know, like you, he has a way of doing that. He has a way of, of putting Sunday school and music and sermons together in ways that we don't design just so we can get the message. He does that all the time. That's the Holy Spirit. And I would say that's the secret to, from, from a big M minister standpoint, from a big T teacher standpoint, that's the secret to effective preaching and teaching. You will not be, and I know I'm, you know, I'm talking only a few guys in the room at this point, you will not be an effective preacher or teacher, speaking to myself as well, unless you're living on these two things. Unless you are nourishing yourself in the word and you're obedient to the doctrine that's found therein. Objectively, you believe the truth and subjectively, you're living that out in obedience. That's the, you will not be an effective servant. You will not be an effective teacher if that's not the case. John Stott said, this seems to be a general rule. Behind the ministry of public teaching, there lies the discipline of private study. All the best teachers have themselves remained students. 
They teach well because they learn well. So before we can effectively instruct others in the truth, we must have really digested it ourselves. And and what's the illustration? I think this is the best illustration I can think of in our modern day. It's the stuff we don't pay attention to when you get on the airplane. And, you know, when they do their little spiel up there at the front of the airplane, and they say if there's a loss of cabin pressure, masks might fall out of the, the thing, right? And what do they say? Before you secure the mask on anyone else, secure your own mask. Why? Because if you don't have oxygen, you won't be any good to your children or somebody that needs help beside you. So you need to be fed the oxygen first so you can effectively help the people that are around you. I think that's the illustration here that he's giving Timothy. You have to teach, you have to preach, you have to shepherd, so you better make sure you're full of the word. Because if you try to do that in your own strength, if you try to do that in the flesh, it's not going to go well. And he offers similar encouragement. I think we see a parallel here and exhortation in his next letter to Timothy a few years later. And this is a familiar passage. But back to the idea of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned. Same thing as here. You've been following them. Timothy, continue in these things and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Right? He said, Timothy already knows it. But he said, Timothy, tell yourself again. Remind yourself, be convinced of these things that you already know, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what characterizes a faithful minister of Christ? Shepherding the sheep by constantly being fed by the word of God and both teaching and being taught the truth of the scriptures. That, that, that none of us, and I can speak for anybody that takes the Bible up in front of this church and teaches, none of us think we've made it. <laughs> none of us have arrived. We don't have it all figured out. There are times when you're talking about these doctrines and you just kind of got to go, I don't know. I don't know. He's God and I'm not. You know, I, there are times when that happens. If you ever run into a preacher that says, I got it all figured out, right? go the other way. <laughs> he doesn't understand what's, what's going on here. Um, th- this is the, the, I, I, the, the quote, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and maybe I've shared it with you before, uh, was W.A. Criswell. Uh, and W.A. Criswell was the pastor down at First Baptist in Dallas for 60 years or something like that, something crazy. And he allegedly, I, I'll take his word for it, <laughs> preached through all 66 books of the Bible. Okay? He's the only guy I've ever heard of that has preached through all 66. Maybe there's been others, but that's the only one I've heard of. And they asked him, you know, what was it like preaching through all 66 books of the Bible. And he says, I've been pastoring for 64 years or whatever. I preached through all 66 books of the Bible. And he said, I have not yet touched the hem of his garment. That's the word. That's why we got to keep feeding ourselves because we, it is a bottomless pit of truth that we have. Um, By the way, if we talk about this second Timothy three passage, what exhortation does Paul follow this statement up with in second Timothy four, two? He says, preach the word. What word? This word. All of it. All scripture. Because all scripture is theopneustos. All scripture is breathed out by God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort uh, with great patience and instruction. How do I do that? The scriptures. The word. That's where it comes from. Okay. Um, I heard a, uh, a workshop on this. H.P. Charles did a workshop on this, and it was his argument for expository preaching. I thought it was fantastic. He said, you know, in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and 4.2, he says, preach the Word. Ties it all together. That's why we preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. That's it. All right. <clears throat> Verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables... 
fit only for old women. Now, before any older women in the congregation get offended, (laughs) let's make sure we understand what Paul is talking about here. Let's clarify his remark, okay? And so let's break it down in the Greek. Worldly fables fit only for old women. And I know you can't read that, what's underneath it, but I'm going to go through it word by word so you can see. The first word there is, is babelos. It means worldly. It means ungodly. Okay, so these are ungodly things. It's translated as profane in 1 Timothy 1.9. Uh, Hebrews 12.16 uses this word to describe Esau. The NASB translates it there as godless. Okay, so this is worldly, um, uh, ungodly, godless. That's kind of the word. On the end of that word is muthos, that's myth, you can see that, that's where the fables comes from. Same as in uh, chapter 1 verse 4, which he uses to describe the false teaching. Chi is a conjunction, that's n, so worldly and uh, greides words here, that is from a root word that means old woman, so it literally means old womanish. Okay, so worldly and old, women, old womanish fables. Well, what might we call that today? We would phrase that as old wives' tales. Okay? That's not a shot at old wives. That's just how we understand it. Okay? It's, it. It means something that is based on frivolous, spurious, superstitious stuff. Right? That, you know, when the wind's blowing a certain way, it means this. When the, you know, when the, when the clouds come in from this direction, it means this. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. You know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's frivolous kind of stuff. So what is Paul doing here? He's equating the doctrine of the false teachers to old wives' tales, to to frivolous things. We have truth and doctrine. They have old wives' tales. it's, It's all, this is what we do, this is what they do. This is what they offer, this is what we can offer. And that's the whole point of it, okay? It's religiously bankrupt. Superstitions are just that. Okay. Uh, one commentator said, nothing but silly fictions fit only for the senile and the childish to chatter about. Um, Paul says emphatically here, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Notice he doesn't say, when they come in and start talking these superstitions, argue them down in the sanctuary. Right? Have a debate, a formal debate about what they're talking about. Now he says, have nothing to do with them. Don't respond to ridiculousness. It's a waste of your breath, right? If they're going to come, if, like if some, and there's a big difference in somebody wanting to sit down and have a religious conversation with you and somebody that wants to throw conspiracy theories and superstitions at you, right? Like one might be worth your time, the other one's not. And, and, and so there, there becomes a situation where you end up casting pearls before swine. And, and it really does not serve any kind of purpose. Have nothing to do with him. He'll say it again in 2 Timothy 2.23 when he says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Refuse them. You know, when somebody comes up with that, say, we don't, we don't teach that here. <laughs> we're, not, we're not entertaining that. We're not talking that in front of the, the body. This is done with. It's not true. Please move along. That's how this is to be treated with. Paul, Paul doesn't even want Timothy to occupy his time answering profane and ridiculous statements. Some false teaching is better ignored rather than discussed. And, 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 you, and I think the Spirit will tell you those things. You know, I think the Spirit will give you that idea of like, there's, there's something here where we can have a conversation. And then you'll realize probably five minutes in whether this is a productive conversation or not. And, and you, have to re- that you have to know your word and you have to know the scriptures. You have to be in touch with the Spirit to do those things. Um, again, there's such a thing as casting pearls before swine. Instead, Paul says, do this. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. They're over here talking about fables. You're into discipline. 
Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Because I think you need discipline not to engage with stupid things. Because <laughs> it's, it, you know, sometimes, I mean, you're, if you're like me, you turn on the news, right? You listen to commentators. You hear people say things, and you get mad because they're saying such ridiculous things. And, and, and if it's disrespectful to your Lord, by the way, he doesn't need us to fight for him. <laughs> but we feel like we need to, right? Like, that's my dad. What are you doing? Right? Like, you, you don't, you know, my dad could really beat your dad in a fight. You know? <laughs> like, we can say that, okay? I, like, we get offended for that, and we feel like we got to go fight that battle. Sometimes it's not worth going to fight that battle. Sometimes it's better just to remain silent in that situation. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Don't be focused on them. Focus on God. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Back to this word godliness. It's eusebeia in the Greek. Fifteen times in the New Testament, 13 times in the pastoral epistles, nine times in this letter. Paul is concerned about godliness in what context? The local church. This is where godliness is pursued, in the context of the local church. It is the centerpiece of the Christian life within the local church. I love this definition of godliness. One commentator said, it's kinetic obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. Kinetic obedience, and you know, I just like that word. It means moving. It means there's something to do. It means it's not a passive obedience, it's, a, it's an active obedience that comes from what? A reverent awe of God. I know who God is, I know what his word says, and because he is God, I spring to action to pursue godliness. And, and, and it's, it's this discipline idea. Paul's giving us that athletic metaphor here, isn't he? And if you've played sports, you really understand that, but I think we can all relate to that. He says discipline. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The word there is, is gumnazo. You can see gymnasium in that word. Okay? Uh, and we, we talked about this in one of, one of the other letters. I think maybe it was Hebrews because he uses it there. Um, but if we literally translated gumnazo, it means to train naked. Because <laughs> that's how the Greeks used to do all their training. Okay? That puts a whole new weird spin on going to gym class, but that's what it literally means, okay? But it's this, this, this devoted physical training for an event, for uh, something, a task that's in front of you. It's the same kind of metaphor he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember, run the race in such a way as to obtain the prize. I, I, I don't just punch the air. I have a purpose here. I, 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 they, they, everybody, we know how athletes train. They do it for an imperishable crown. We do it for a perishable crown. We do it for an imperishable crown. Like that's our pursuit when that happens. And, and Paul's point is that godliness is not achieved passively. It, it involves both right belief and obedient action. Now, that, uh, there's a part of this we need to understand that any holiness, any godliness that you achieve or are given is, comes from God. Right? We understand that peace. But you don't get it sitting on the couch watching TV. Does that make sense? So there's, a, there, there, there's two sides to this. Yes, I know sanctification comes only from God. comes only through the Holy Spirit. But if I don't ever pursue godliness on my own, I'll never reach it. Right? And, and, and so there's a, there's a balance here where if we get that out of whack, it's the same thing with salvation, right? That, that if you take it to the, to the other ditch, you could say, well, I don't have to do anything to get saved. No, that's not what the Bible says. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the one that saves, and he alone is the one that saved. But you have to make a profession of faith. Nobody gets saved without knowing. 
That's not how it works. And so it's the same thing in, in our sanctification, where you are being saved. That's the active idea. And, and there's a popular sentiment nowadays in Christian circles. Let go and let God. Now, is that entirely untrue? No. There's some truth in that, right? That only God can help, can help you overcome these things. But at the same time, it's not this passive idea. Perhaps we could call it Jesus take the wheel theology, right? Like that's, th- th- those are, that's a popular song. <laughs> it was whenever it came out. But that's not a Christian song. But everybody, oh, it's a Christian. She said Jesus. That's a Christian song. No, that bad theology. Now, it, it, what's that? He has the wheel. Yeah, he never let go of it, right? So it, there, there's some truth in this that, yes, I, I need to turn things over to God. At the same time, it's not this hands-off, laissez-faire kind of thing. That, because uh, we've got these balances in Scripture of the truth of salvation, the truth of holiness, and yet what does Paul say over and over again? What does Peter say? Be holy because he's holy. Pursue holiness. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Do these things. So it's not as if I just sit back and I just get all these things poured on me because I'm so great. Because I I was smart enough to put my faith in Christ, and so he just gives me all this prosperity and blessing and wisdom, and that's not how it works. You don't become more godly that way. You you, you are now, because of your salvation, because of what he's done, I now pursue him, and in that, God sanctifies us. We we talk about these different things, and uh, one guy I used to work for used to tell me he would watch me coach, and I'm glad there's not much film of me coaching for you guys to see, um, <clears throat> or playing for that matter. Uh, <laughs> it was a little different guy then, but uh, I, I would be very passionate on the on the sidelines, and I would uh, I got a little more disciplined as it went. You know, I I didn't get a technical for like the last three years I coached because I if I got a technical I meant to get it. You know, it was one of those kind of things. Whereas the first few years I got plenty of them because I overstepped boundaries, but I had this this passion and all that, and and I would you know you draw up a play for the kids to run. And they wouldn't run it. <laughs> and, you know, and I would be on the sideline, you know, throwing the clipboard up in the air and all that kind of stuff. And a friend of mine said that, you know, he said he called those sanctifying moments. <laughs> like when you draw something up, this is how we're going to do it. It's going to work perfectly. That guy's going to jump that screen. We're going to have a layup right here. And then they don't run the play. And, and that's a moment either to lose it or to show some maturity. Now, Put whatever thing you want to go in there. Uh, Pastor, I think you mentioned the idea of having children on Sunday in our marriage class. Boy, that's a sanctifier, right? That you add these things into your lives. Boy, sanctification. You've got opportunities to pursue holiness or not, right? And, and that's, that's the whole thing. Those, that, those are those opportunities where you have to find those sanctifying moments and, and, and pursue holiness. Well, <clears throat> again, those statements, the let go, let God statements and all that, they're not entirely untrue, but it cannot, be, it can't be applied to the pursuit of godliness and personal holiness. Why is it dangerous? Because it creates a situation in which I am still sinning because God hasn't taken it out of my life yet. Do you understand that? Like, this is, uh, you know, we talk about progressive sanctification. You know, that, that God, we're, and we're all on a walk, and we're all supposed to becoming, become more mature in Christ. And I believe that that's what's happening to all of us if we're pursuing Christ, right? He's conforming us to the image of his son. But there is this definition of progressive sanctification where a man might say, well, you know what? I really want to stop with my language and losing my temper, but God just hasn't taken it away from me yet. No, that's not it. <laughs> It's this, I'm just, we're all works in progress. Well, I know we're works in progress, 
but we're not works in progress who wallow in sin. Right? I mean, would, would somebody say something like, well, you know what, I don't want to physically abuse my wife anymore, but God just hasn't taken it out of my life. That's, it's ridiculous, right? That's not God's fault that you're sinning, right? That's not how it is. And so if we, if we create this separation where we either make it, I don't do anything or I do everything, there are pitfalls on both sides of that. There is this balance between God giving us all holiness, all righteousness we have is from him, and yet my desire, my heart, God has given us the desires of our heart because now our hearts are changed and they now match his desires. We pursue those. Not my own, I now pursue that. And that, otherwise, it's a perversion of that progressive sanctification. He says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, is Paul disparaging exercise? <laughs> no, it's not what he's saying. Now, there wasn't a Gold's Gym Ephesus. You know, it, it, it really wasn't a pursuit in those days. You, know, you didn't go to Pilates class back in, the, in those days. But what is he doing? He's discouraging the pursuit of the physical at the expense of the spiritual. And and really, if we put this in context, he's not all of a sudden talking about the fitness experts. What he's talking about are the false teachers again, who are saying that what you do with your body is more important than what you do with your spirit. That, that's what he's attacking. And that, that, that when we see the similar argument in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that I referenced earlier, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And, and, and further up there, that bodily discipline, uh, soma tike gymnasia, soma is body, gymnasia is training, so bodily discipline, bodily training, Sounds like he's addressing athletic things. However, again, that's, that's out of context. But what he's saying here is that spiritual purity is, being, is more important than, than being able to lift heavy things, than to be able to run fast. But again, that's not what's really at stake. What's at stake is that one of the tenets of the false teachers was ascetic practices that led you to godliness. Dietary restrictions that led you to godliness. Abstaining from marriage and sexual activity because it led you to godliness. And, and, and so if you do that, it, like for example, if I decide to go become a vegan, no danger in that, so it's a good hypothetical, okay, then boy, I'm going to have to really change my lifestyle. And I'm going to have to learn how to subsist on a much different diet, probably less calories, right? I'm going to have to come up with different ways to get my food, to be able to do those things. And that's going to take discipline because when it becomes difficult, the temptation is, ah, forget it. I'll just go back to eating the the cheeseburgers, right? No, but it requires discipline. And so uh, Paul is all for discipline. He's all for controlling your desires, He's all for training. He's used those, those ideas. In, in, in Corinthians, he uses that athletic analogy. He uses the soldier analogy. He uses a farmer analogy. Like he, he says, this is, you're called to work. That's good. Discipline, be dedicated and work at these things. But if it's done in legalism, in attempts to gain righteousness, you're off the rails. And, and if it's at the expense of true doctrine and based on superstition, it's of no profit. Stop following these empty things. And so the alternative is this. Godliness is profitable for all things. How is godliness profitable for all things? It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The asceticism of the false teachers might produce some physical benefits. If you're a vegetarian, you're probably going to lose weight. You're probably going to be a little bit thinner. I don't know. Mate, you know you're probably going to eat less calories. You're not, you might be in better health. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not a, not a uh, nutritionist or anything like that. But if you are disciplining yourself in exercise and diet, 
you're going to be in better shape. You'll be a healthier person. That's, that's a good thing, and that benefits here and now. But if you are doing these things in order to become holy, good luck. Right? He says, look, listen, you can be healthy now. It's great. Be healthy in, that, in today. Be healthy for your life. Live a long and productive life so you can continue to serve the Lord. But if you're doing all these things without the Lord being attached, it's nothing more than just behavior modification. And, and, and behavior modification is fine, but it has nothing to do with holiness. It has nothing to do with pursuing God. Right? This has to be a spiritual discipline. And, and asceticism represents an effort to control the appetites in our flesh, in this life. Godliness represents a practice of self-control in this life so that we will reap benefits in eternity. Now, do those, does the self-control that we are exercising to go after godliness, does that save us? Of course not. But what that does is it shows us that we've got fruit of salvation. We've got evidence of salvation. We've got evidence of God working in our life. We've got the evidence of the presence of the Spirit within our lives. And that gives us assurance. That gives us confidence. That solidifies our hope. It strengthens our faith. Because if not for God, then why pursue these things? You know, why would you ever want to get into a marriage relationship if you didn't have God? Yeah, I, I mean, for some of us, we're, I mean, Kim and I will talk about this, like, how do people do marriage without the Lord in the middle of it? <laughs> you know, like, and why would you want to? Like, if it's all about me, then let me just be selfish and get whatever I want. Why would I want to get into something that makes me sacrifice what's, what, what I'm most in tune with? What, it, that's why the Lord being at the center of marriage and the design of marriage is so important. Because we understand, and we should understand, not that we do this perfectly all the time, but we should understand that we're not first. And our spouse isn't even first, he's first. So if he's not that threefold cord, if he's not that middle cord holding you together, you got two sinners trying to hold things together by the flesh, that's not going to work. And, and, you know, and I know there's exceptions to the rule. I know we can find people that don't believe in God and that have been married for 50 years, but I'm telling you, <laughs> and you know this, that this is, this is something that God designed, and boy, does it come into, the, into focus when God's at the center of it. And so, uh, where was I? There we are. Um, Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Well, if I don't have eternity in mind, then all I have is right now. All I have is fulfilling desires. But no, we know this is a longer game than that. We know this is just a small part of eternity to come. And when he says there, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There are two words in the New Testament that are used for life. The first one is bios. It's where we get our word bio, biology. It means someone breathing and their heart beating. You have life. You are alive with bios. That's not the word he uses here. He uses the other word for life, which is zoe, Okay? And it is the antithesis of death. It is the life that we live. It is the quality of the life that we live. So it's not, it holds, pres- it holds benefit for you breathing and staying alive longer. No, it has benefit for living a godly life, for a life that means something, for a life that, that has been given to you for eternity by a Savior. It is the antithesis of death. And then he follows that up with just kind of an exclamation point in verse 9. He said, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. We've seen this phrase before. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 1. The question here, and I'll do it real quickly, what statement is Paul referring to? Is he looking back at verse 8, or is he looking forward to verse 10? 
because both are trustworthy statements. Okay, so we could go either way. I think more likely that he's speaking of verse 8, what he just said. That, that, that spiritual uh, discipline and pursuit of godliness has benefit both in this life and also the life to come. You can bank on it, he says. That's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. And the reason I say that is because now we're going to get to verse 10, which seems like a reflection of what he said in verse 8. So he's, he's really hammering home this idea of spiritual discipline over bodily discipline, true doctrine over frivolous fables. So it's trustworthy saying that godliness is profitable for all things and that it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 10, for it is for this godliness, it is for this that we strive and labor and strive. It's godliness. We, We labor and strive for godliness. Why? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Those words there are really... Uh, indicative of what he's trying to say here and how our pursuit of godliness is to be. The word labor is uh, kopiao. It means to work to the point of weariness. It means to work to exhaustion. It's not just a job. It's to work till you collapse at the end of it. What's Paul saying? That godliness demands energy. It demands effort. If you're not going to put the time in, you're never going to get close to it. And then he follows that up with maybe an even stronger word, that word strive, agonizomai. It's where we get our word agony. (laughs) Agony. So you strive, you labor to the point of exhaustion, you contend and you struggle to the point of pain. Think 1 Corinthians 9.25, competing in those games, finishing the race. I, I think the picture is it's that burst of effort at the end of the competition when you can see the finish line. And as soon as you hit the finish line, everything's left behind you. You know, you just kind of, you see these guys run these races and marathons and whatnot, and they cross that finish line and just collapse in a heap. That's agonizomai. That's hurting for the sake of what you're going after. It's, if we had a, 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 anybody ever seen the Message Bible? You ever seen that translation? There's some wonky translations in there. Okay. I would say the Message Bible would translate this verse, no pain, no gain. (laughs) That's how we would lay it out. Okay. That's what he's saying. Okay, not a good translation, but that's the idea, that, that this is worth pursuing. It's worth struggling and striving for. By the way, both of those verbs are present tense verbs. Wasn't that appropriate? Because we continually do these things. We continually label, labor. We continually strive. You know, Paul will say this, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't reached perfection. I'm still striving for what God has for me. That's what I want to do. And so there's this, li- this laboring and striving for godliness. Why would someone go through so much pain? Why would so much go through so much difficulty? It's so much easier not to be disciplined. Why would we do those things? And he says right there, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. That's the finish line. We can see the finish line. We know where we're going, and we're fixed on that goal. Uh, you, you've probably heard the, uh, the metaphor, because I've heard several preachers use it, but the, uh, and I don't know her name. If you know it, you can yell it out. But the woman that swam the English Channel, the first woman to swim the English Channel, do you remember this story? She tried it several times, uh, at least a couple times, and the first time she did it, uh, it was a very foggy uh, day when she did it, and as she was swimming across, uh, she, the fog had rolled in, and she couldn't see the shoreline. And she gave up about a mile from the shoreline because she couldn't see the shore. That's an effective metaphor, right? If you don't know where you're going and things are difficult and the fog's in, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit down here and quit. No, but if I can see where I'm going, I know where the goal is. 
and we fix our eyes on Christ. We see the same thing in Hebrews 12. Our, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's gone before us. He's made the way. <laughs> He's torn down the veil. He's entered the Holy of Holies, and he invites us to follow him, and we are pursuing that. We know that's guaranteed. So if we have that goal in mind, we can be fixed on that. And again, we've talked about this as well. Hope in the New Testament is not how we use it in our modern vocabulary. It's not, I hope the Pirates will win a World Series before I die. It's not that, because there's not a lot of hope in that. Okay? It's hope that is fixed and guaranteed. The hope that the New Testament talks about is a promise that is guaranteed to happen. So when, when our hope is in Christ, it's I know what's coming because Christ has told me it's coming. That's where my hope lies. It's fixed. It's not, it's not how we often define it. Why labor to the point of exhaustion? Why push ourselves to the limits? And I would say from an earthly example, have you ever had a coach that you would do anything for? A teacher that you would go the extra mile for? An instructor, a mentor, whatever context? That, that if you've had a coach that, man, if he told me to run through that brick wall, I'd run through the brick wall for him. Like that, 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 and we understand that on earthly level, how much more for a Savior? How much more for a risen Savior, an ascended Savior, a, 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 a king that is coming? Why, why are these kind of coaches and teachers and mentors effective? Because they have given us the means by which we can succeed in what we're pursuing. It's the same idea here. Our fixed hope is in the perfect tense. We've talked about that perfect tense. You know what perfect means? It means it's an accomplished thing that has abiding benefits. So when it says we have fixed our hope on the living God perfectly, it's fixed. It's not moving. It's, it's where it is forever because he is not changing so that, that place can't move. And once again, our God is alive. It's on the living God. We have fixed our hope on the living God, not the dead gods of the false teachers. The living God, the only God who is alive. The dead religion of the false teachers, the life that comes in Christ. Now, one more statement here. The living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Another controversial phrase. And we've talked about this a little bit earlier when we were in uh, when we were talking about the ransom verse earlier. So let's talk about this again. What Paul is not saying, we know this because we've read the rest of Scripture that salvation is universal, that God saves all men whether they come to Christ or not. We know that Scripture doesn't agree with that. So we know we can't read this. Oh, he's the Savior of all men. That he's saved all men. No, he hasn't saved all men. Same thing we talked about. That If you lift me up, I will draw all men to myself. Well, he hasn't drawn all men to himself. There has to be a qualifier to those all men. There has to be a qualifier to this all men, or we land in universalism. First off, this is not the first time that God is called Savior in the letter. He did it in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 3. Paul does it three times in Titus. It's kind of an interesting way because usually Jesus is Savior. Here, God is Savior. Um, that doesn't change any bit because Jesus is God and God is Jesus and all that, but just interesting terminology. Now, people have tried to explain this. What does he mean by the Savior of all men? Well, one view is that he is describing God as the preserver of all. In that Matthew 5.45, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, that's a true statement, but that would be a very different use of the word Savior. It's not used that way in Scripture. That's an attempt to kind of go, well, maybe he means this. Well, I guess we can't throw it out entirely, but this would be about the only time he uses it in that way. So I don't think that's it. Uh, Another approach is to view the second half of this where it says, especially of believers. 
The word there is melista. Sometimes they'll translate that as namely or precisely. There's been some recent scholar, uh, scholarship on that, I'd say, when I mean, say recent, from the 70s on. Um, and and it's, again, it's not out of the question, but that's not normally how it's worked. It's wor- normally, it's especially. Okay? That's normally how it's used. Um, there is another Greek phrase meaning namely, and Paul could have used it here. He used it in many other places, and he doesn't. So that brings us back to the question. What does it mean that the living God, Jesus, is the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Well, I think there's a parallel term in Scripture. Savior of all men, I think, lines up very well with what we see in John's writings. When in John 4.42, Jesus said, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard you for ourselves and know that this one, this, actually these are, the, these are the men that respond to the woman at the well that Jesus talked to. Okay? It's not for what you, we've heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world, the Savior of all men. I think that means the same thing. 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Again, is John saying that everyone's going to be saved? No. So that can't be what he means, so I think we've got the same thing here. Now, again, I think everybody in the room knows where I stand on the issue, okay? and, and there are good brothers out there that would disagree with me. Uh, but what drives my interpretation, in addition to other scriptures, is, again, I'll, we talked about this several weeks back, is if we make Jesus' death on the cross potentially salvific. Because that's the general Arminian interpretation of this verse, is that salvation is available to all, but most people don't take it. So so he died for everyone, but it's only efficient if they believe in faith. That's the general mainstream idea. But again, we've talked about this before. If Jesus' death on the cross is only potential, well, it's potential that nobody would get saved, because somebody has to believe in Christ, and none of us are righteous, no, not one. None of us seek after God, and yet people come to Christ. How does that happen? Well, again, logically, the only way that, that we get to the end of this uh, discussion from a potentially salvation perspective is that it either leads to a universalism, which the Bible rejects, or the double payment of one sin. That Christ died for that person's sin on the cross, and then they will also be punished for that sin in eternity in hell. Double payment for the same sin. And again, how could you be a savior and not save? (laughs) Can you be someone's savior and they're not delivered? I think that's a difficult thing to put together, right? You could could be their hero. (laughs) You could be a potential hero, but you're not going to be their savior unless someone is saved. It leads to a universal application of the payment of the the cross, and that just doesn't match up with Scripture. I think both are untenable from a biblical perspective. So here's my two cents on it. The all here must be the same as the all in 2.6 when he said, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So that all is the same as this all. So Christ died for all people and for the world in the sense that he is the only way for anyone to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That all people, all nations, all kindred, all tribes, all tongues, he is the savior of that world. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be redeemed, he is the only way. He is the savior of the world in that he is the only savior of the world, just as he is the only son of God. And so when it says especially Christ died for believers, what he means is that Christ died especially for those that have believed So he's provided the only means for the world to be reconciled to God, but chiefly and particularly, he's the savior of those who he has redeemed. 
Okay? That's, that's the biblical way to understand the verse. Again, now I know there'll be people out there that disagree with me. Okay? They'll just have to be wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm infallible, not saying that I got it all figured out, but I'm trying to take into account what Scripture teaches us about salvation. And I think that's the only position you can come down on that honors the, the biblical picture of what, what exactly Christ accomplished on that cross, which is exactly, precisely, perfectly what he meant to accomplish on the cross, that other people that don't come to faith in Christ did not have their sins paid for, because if they did, they wouldn't logically go to hell for eternal torment. He died for his elect. Okay? Now, everybody gets upset about that. Not everybody, but you know, everybody that wants to oppose that gets upset about that. And that says, well, that's not fair. That's not this. That's not that. Okay, first of all, you're not God. <laughs> His prerogative rules on all this. Um, and, and at the same time, there is a precision here that will result in the ultimate glory of God. Focus on the glory of God in all things. You don't have to understand divine election. I don't. Nobody else in this room does because that happens in the mind of God. I don't know how. Why him and not him? Why her and not that guy? I don't know. But I trust the judge of the universe to judge justly. That's what I do. And it's accomplished in his mind. And so don't try to get into God's mind and figure something out that's not in your purview. I think that's, go with what scripture says. Live by the words of the faith and and by good doctrine and and you won't be steered wrong. So let's summarize the whole passage. A faithful servant of Christ must be nourished by the word of God and sound teaching. That you must be eating the right foods in order to perform. They are to avoid frivolous conversations. They must possess discipline and pursue godliness. And they press on through difficulty. Why? Because they see their finish line. Their hope is in a living God and a perfect Savior. That's, that's, that's what he gave us in those five short verses. Good stuff, good doctrine, good stuff to apply. All right? I got four minutes. Do I, can I answer anything that I did not cover there? Yeah, Jen. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that, it's, that it's more personal and intimate with those that believe, obviously. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of all men in, I think, two ways. One in which he is the only way to salvation, all across borders, all across that. And two, he will save all manners of people, all kinds of people, all ages of people throughout history. And so in that sense, he is the Savior to all men. He is the one that's offered to all men, but he is the, he is the personal Savior to those who will believe. Mike. That you gave me, yeah. Yeah, John 6, John 10, John 17. There, there is a, that I know who my sheep are. They hear my voice. I know them, haven't lost any of them that you gave me. You can't take them out of my hand. I can't take them out of your hand. Nobody can, right? All that, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it, it's, it, you know, the wrong question is, can a Christian lose their salvation? It's no, it's can God lose a Christian? Because he holds it, not you. You're not, you're not holding on to it. You'd drop it, so would I. We'd fumble it day one. <laughs> yeah. No, we do not. And that's, yeah. That's why we preach to all creation. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, because we, again, we don't, I can't look at anybody and say, yep, elect, not elect, elect, not, nope. Everybody gets the gospel. <laughs> That's it. Everybody gets it. And then God sorts, God does the saving. 
We are, the, we are obedient servants that proclaim the gospel, and, and we are, for some reason, God uses our fallible, stuttering, tripping voices to bring the gospel to people when they believe, even when we don't do a great job of putting it together because he's the one that's doing the saving. Our job is to be obedient, so we preach to all creation. Yeah, exactly right. And that, boy, and I think I've mentioned it before, boy, does that take the stress off of a preacher, all right? Like, it's not my responsibility to get you saved. It's not your responsibility to get your friend, your family saved. It's your responsibility to tell them the truth. And then you trust God with the results. That's what it is. One minute. Anyone, one more question if anybody's got one. If not, I'll shut it down. Well, we can talk when we get home. <laughs> Do we have any Z's in the sermon today, buddy? No. Will likes it when we have Z's in the sermon. So, uh, so he, he misses Zechariah because we had a Z every week. <clears throat> All right. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I pray we, it would nourish us. It, it, it does, Lord, it will. Uh, help us to be obedient. Help us to live there. Help us to subside on that. Uh, so much more than these earthly things, so much more than these fleshly desires. Uh, your word fulfills. It, it, it gives us truth, Lord. It guides us into all truth. It leads us to uh, obedience, to service, to ministry. Uh, help us to be obedient to those things. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the provision that you've given us in in your church, in in your holy word, uh, and in most of all in the sacrifice of your son. And thank you for the faith that you've given us to believe. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.